It's good to have everybody in here. I love the church family being able to be together. This is an incredible opportunity. I can speak firsthand, um, though I, it wasn't in high school for me, it was in college, but I remember uh, in college, they made a huge emphasis the, in this college ministry I was a part of, and it was all about getting the gospel, sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel. I grew up in a Christian home. I understood the gospel in a way, and as I shared the gospel, I think I, I jokingly say, but I'm somewhat serious at the same time, by the thousandth time, it finally dawned on me. I was like, oh, that's what Jesus did for me. That is incredible. See, I'd grown up in a Christian home. I, I, I'd heard it, but it was in the process of learning to, to not just receive it, but share it, that it, became, it came to life. It really sunk in that much dip, deeper and, and richer. And so I'm excited, you younger folks, for the experience, not just the experience, but what God is going to do in your hearts and also through your faithfulness. So that is going to be an incredible time. Please, like Steve said, let's be in prayer all this next week for those young people that God would do what only God can accomplish. I also want to say happy 4th. It is 4th of July today. Most of the time, it's not a typical Sunday where we're celebrating this holiday, but today, for such a time as this, we get to celebrate the fact uh, that we get to experience freedom that we get to experience independence from tyranny, and that we get to celebrate the lives of those who sacrifice so that we could experience the, the freedom there is of, of a free democracy. So we have much to give thanks. We have much to celebrate. We have much to be thankful for. We should never take for granted what we have even today. But we also must understand that is all God's grace. Everything that we experience in life, anything good that we experience in life is all God's grace to us. That's it. There's no other explanation. We can give a lot of reasons for it, but in the end, when it's all said and done, God has been gracious to us. So brothers and sisters, happy fourth. I pray that you have a wonderful celebration. I pray that you would take the time to to just stop and reflect for a moment of the goodness of God, even through social and political freedoms that we experience even today. But I think an even more profound expression of grace is not that we get to grow up in a free democracy. A more profound expression of grace is on full display when God sent his son to be the savior of the world. The young people are with us this morning. I love it. It's okay. This is family. You know what our house is like every day now. So you should have heard it this morning. It was one of those mornings. <laughs> and we're still smiling. But the fact is, brothers and sisters, God has loved us and bestowed on us, has lavished us with such an expression of grace when he sent his son Jesus to die. So on one hand, yes, we, we celebrate our political freedom. We celebrate our social uh, independence. And that is something that's worth celebrating and giving thanks to God for. But we also celebrate the fact that Jesus, by his coming in bodily form, has delivered us from the tyranny of sin and offers us freedom unending. Hallelujah indeed.
Paul says that this in Ephesians chapter 2, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. That's who we are. Apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, right? That huge but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Peter says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we have received the greatest gift of all. In Jesus Christ, we have been delivered from sin and from death. In Jesus Christ, we have the promise of eternal life. That is a guarantee, by the way. It's not just a a hope-filled, maybe someday it'll happen promise. It is a guarantee, a certain outcome. His divine presence in our lives right now is the result or the fruit of what he accomplished at the cross. All this is made possible by the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I can't think of a greater time right now than to celebrate the cross of Jesus. I can't think of a better time right now than to celebrate through communion the greatest gift, the greatest expression of grace, the greatest gift of freedom and independence that was brought about by Jesus Christ. As Jesus even encouraged, really exhorted his disciples, as often as you come together, remember me. As often as you come together, remember what I have done for you. Do not forget. We're forgetful people. And so we have this sacrament as a way of constant remembrance. As a way of always coming back to a critical, a crucial, a necessary point of reference. And that is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate his body. We eat the bread in celebration of his body and as a way of remembering that he gave his body, his life for us. Let us eat with gratefulness. In the same way, Jesus says, this cup represents my blood which was lovingly and freely poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's drink in remembrance of Christ's great sacrifice on our behalf. Well, Father, right now we acknowledge the fact that though we have already been just in your presence through through singing and through music and through worship. Father, we desire to continue to be in your presence. We desire to continue to be in your presence by listening through what you have for us through your word. So give us open hearts. Give us open minds. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Because you have the words of eternal life. Our greatest need in this life. Glorify yourself, Father, even now. May this be an act of our worship through the listening of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, a verse that you probably memorized, if you did any scripture memory, probably one of the first verses you memorized was what? 
Okay, maybe it wasn't all the same. I heard of John 3.16. I think there was a handful of others. John 3.16 was, I think, my first. Maybe it was Jesus wept. That was an easy one. But then it was John 3.16. For God so loved the world. We can sing it together. That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen, indeed. What I love about John 3.16, sometimes it's like as we grow in Christ, we come back to the things that were once elementary to us at one time, and now you realize, wow, this, these are some of the most profound verses. I'd never, maybe I haven't acknowledged them like I, ha- I should have for a very long time, but as you reflect on John 3.16, for God so loved the world. You see, love for his creation, specifically love for the human race, was what compelled God to take personal responsibility to save us from our sin. John even says it in 1 John 4. He says, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, it was love that compelled Jesus to go willingly to the cross for our sin. John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, Jesus says, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see, love is the driving motivation for all that God is and all that God does. Why? As John says, because God is what? Love. God is love. I think it's kind of interesting in one of my devotionals, even this week with my wife, we read out of Exodus chapter 33. And there Moses, in Exodus 33, Moses asked God, Lord, show me your glory. God, show me your glory. And what he's really asking is, God, I want to know you more fully. I want to really know you. Who are you really? What are you really like? Give me a, a deeper, more intimate, more profound experience of you. And of course, we might ask, we might think in our minds when God said, show me your glory, we're thinking power, right? We're thinking majesty. We're thinking something massive. And God responds this to Moses' question. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and the transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I think it's interesting that when Moses asked God, in a sense, he's really just going, Lord, just show me. I want to see you more fully. That'll be so much more convincing, right? If I see you in a much fuller, clearer light. You know, right now we understand that we see dimly. One day we will see face to face. Right now we don't see as clearly. One day we will see face to face. Moses is asking, I want to see you face to face right now. I want to see everything right now. Of course, God says, you can't, you'll die. But he says this, I am the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. 
That's how the Lord chooses to divulge who he is. That's how he chooses to describe himself. When Moses says, Lord, who are you really? He says, I am merciful and I am gracious. Dane Ortland, who's a, an author that I mentioned last week, the author of Gentle and Lowly, he makes a profound, I think, or a helpful observation about this passage. He says, God does not reveal his glory as the Lord, the Lord, tolerant and overlooking, or, or the Lord, the Lord, disappointed and frustrated. His highest priority and deepest delight, his first reaction, his heart is mercy and grace. You see, love is at the center. It's the driving motivation for all that God is and does. For all that He does for us as well as His revelation to us. So if we were to ask the question, who is God? Or even how do we understand what He is like? What's His true nature? An appropriate answer would be, God is mercy. God is grace. God is love. The question I have for you is do you view God in this way? When you think about God, do you think about Him like this? What is your image of God when you think about Him? It's possible you might say, you know, it's, I maybe struggle or have some difficulty. Perhaps you might even respond and say, I, w- I wish I could just see him, you know. I mean, we talk about God, but I've never actually seen him. And the fact is, we have. We have seen him. Even his disciples acknowledge, even the apostle also proclaims that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And though no one has seen God, we see Him and we've experienced Him because Jesus is the literal embodiment of God. In Him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Even John attests right from the beginning of his gospel saying that all of us just saw Him, we experienced the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is that bodily expression of God's glory. Glory that is defined by goodness and grace and mercy and love. And you know what? As his children, he desires that we too, like him, be filled and motivated out of love. That love would be the driving motive for all matters of our life. You might recall from last week, I introduced to us our, our, our new series. We are going through the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruits, plural, of the Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit. There are many parts that make up what we call the fruit of the Spirit. And this morning is the first virtue, the first character trait of the Holy Spirit, and that is the character trait or the virtue of love. There's no coincidence that love 
comes first in this list. We see that God teaches us in Scripture that love is the catalyst for not only relating to Him, but also rightly relating to one another. Love is the means by which we rightly relate to God and to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's why Jesus affirms in Matthew 22 that the greatest of all commands, I mean, you can, you can tally up 650, 670-odd commands, but he says, if you really want to get it right, just remember these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law depends upon these two commands. In some ways, if we refer to get everything that God says, if we were just to remember these two commands, we we would still be doing well. We would still honor God. We'd still serve and properly obey Him because our hearts would be motivated from love. I think it's important to remember too or to remind ourselves of this. I, I mentioned this a while back in our Ten Commandments series. Remember that, that, that the Ten Commandments are, is really God's expression of love for us. In other words, God does not command us or doesn't give us commands because he doesn't love us. Quite the contrary. No, God loves us so much that he gives us commands. He gives us clear boundaries. He tells us where you lose your life as well as where you gain your life. As any loving parent would do, he doesn't just let us go, hey, you know what, figure it out. Good luck with that. No, God loves us so much. He loves his children that he gives us clear commands, clear guidelines. He shows us how to live and what is good for us. As Kevin DeYoung says, the Ten Commandments tell us how free people stay free. God has freed us from the, the tyranny of sin and darkness, and this is how we stay free. You see, God wants us and this isn't health and wealth gospel or anything, God actually wants us to experience the abundant life. He wants us to experience his joy and his peace. He wants that for us. He wants us to live in continual freedom. But we also must understand that these divine gifts are experienced only when we live life on his terms, not our own when we follow his ways and not our ways. And as we discussed even last Sunday, when we live in, a, in an abiding relationship with Jesus by abiding in his love. Again, love is the driving motivation for all that God is. It's all that God does and all that God will do. The heart of all God's commands to us is love for his creation. And when we come to understand and, and when we come to realize this, this more fully and when we come to are filled with this unending love that God makes available for us, it is then that we can effectively, effectively respond in love for God as well as respond in love for one another. It's difficult but easy to understand. If you're struggling to love someone next to you, It's because you're not yet filled with the love of Christ. The only way we can effectively love people in front of us, regardless of their performance, regardless of what they have done, is by being filled with what God has already done 
for you. We love, John says, because he first loved us. But what if love is not my driving motivation in life? What if love is not my driving motivation for all that I do and how I choose to live? Can't I still be a decent and civil human being without the conscious focus of love? Do, do loving motives really matter more than doing the right thing or, or saying the right thing? Well, Paul has actually something to say about that in 1 Corinthians 13. If you want to turn in your Bibles there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> To give you a quick context while you're turning there, Paul is just, in chapter 12, he's, he's addressing the Corinthian believers and, and how all the various gifts matter. All the gifts of God that are spiritually endowed by God matter, whether they're very visible or whether they're somewhat invisible. Every gift matters. And here's the right way or the proper way in which these gifts are to be implemented and exercised in one another's midst. And so, yes, it's talk about the gift, but he says, I'm going to show you an even better way. I'm going to show you an even a, a, a better way to live. And then verse 1 of chapter 13, he begins. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. You see, the Corinthian church, the context was that they were, they were not lacking in gifts, but what Paul was addressing was their misuse of gifts. You see, the problem was not the gift itself, but the motivation behind their use of gifts. They were, they were really using their gifts for self-serving gain. And yet that's the very opposite of why we've been gifted by the Holy Spirit. We are gifted by the Holy Spirit so that we might serve Christ and his church more effectively. Gifts are given so that we might build up the body of Christ. Gifts are always outward focus. They're never intended to serve yourself. And so the Corinthian believers Unfortunately, we're serving themselves. And as Paul kind of implicitly says, spiritual giftedness is very different than spiritual maturity. There's a very real difference between spiritual giftedness and someone who is spiritually mature. And so Paul says, I'm going to show you a more excellent way Paul teaches that without love, even the greatest of all gifts and abilities and intentions really mean nothing. They do not equate to anything of eternal value. Yes, a visual. 
You could be the most gifted, the pers most persuasive, the most articulate communicator, the, the greatest orator known to the human race, right? Do you want me to stop? Isn't that great? Now you know what our house sounds like every morning. I know. <laughs> the fact is, Paul says, it doesn't matter how smooth and articulate your speech is, how, how wise and carefully crafted your statements are. It doesn't, none of that matters because if it isn't motivated out of love, you've gained nothing. It does not equate to anything of eternal value. Or Paul says you could have to be the most gifted mind and you could be able to, to discover even the most deepest and, and you know, uh, intricate theological truths where most people would be like you know, head, you know, deer in a headlight, right? You know, be like, I have no idea what you just said. But you could have someone who has just an immense knowledge and you just understand and you're that person, you're that guy or gal that says, just go talk to that person. They seem to know everything and yet if you have no love you actually brought no value to the other person or you could have incredible faith I just trust God so much. I am not dissuaded. I am not taken out. I'm not easily derailed by my circumstances in front of me. I have such great faith. I know my God. He is so big. But if you have not love, you've gained nothing. You might have a big head, but you have a small heart. Or you could be regarded as the greatest philanthropist, right? Someone who just, wow, they, are, they just love people so well. Or you could even be willing to give your life as a martyr. You know, isn't that the greatest of all sacrifices? To give your own life as a martyr? Well, according to what Paul says, if it's not compelled by love, you haven't gained anything. I think the point is very clear. You can possess all these remarkable abilities and gifts but if love is absent, then nothing has been gained nor accomplished for the kingdom of heaven. Once again, spiritual giftedness is not the same as spiritual maturity. So love is vitally important. I think that's hopefully clear to you. But there's still a very important question we have to answer, and that is this. What is love? What in the world, how do, how do we do understand or, or describe what love is? I mean, we can use the word love and know that's really important, but as I'm sure you've come to understand, love can be a very subjective understanding, right? It can be a feeling or a concept or an idea that is more subjectively defined than maybe divinely understood. I read a few articles this past week just kind of curious about what people say about love. And I mean, there's all kinds of ways. I mean, people say that love is what? Love. Love is love. Isn't that helpful? And so when people ask, well, what does that mean, love is love? Well, then everybody has their own interpretation of that. Love is a, love is a, 
um, a strong feeling towards someone else. It means, it means to stick together for no matter what. Love is a powerful voice. Love means to believe in yourself. It means to feel connected. It means to, to not sexually shame others or not to, to love what we want. It means to celebrate differences. There's all kinds of ways in which people personally understand what they think love to be. But Paul actually tells us what love is. He tells us the danger of being compelled in the absence of love, but then he goes on to tell us, here's what love is. Continuing on in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13, we'll just break these down clause by clause here. Love is patient and kind. Love is patient and kind. Patience and kindness are actually two sides of the same coin. Patience is, a, is, is the passive quality of love, whereas kindness is the active quality of love. Patience in this context literally means to be long-suffering, to suffer long. It really has the context, the context is very much relational. And so when you think about someone who is patient, we're not just talking about, all right, you know, let's just kind of be a little slower in our, our getting going for the day, or okay, I won't, I won't react too quickly in anger, but patience is actually when someone inflicts hurt onto you, when someone does something that is hurtful or, or um, frustrating or that angers you, patience means you absorb it. Patience means that you are not reactive to it. It's the passive quality of love. You just take it. It doesn't bounce back. But kindness is, again, the flip side of the coin is patience absorbs and kindness goes out of your way to bless. Kindness literally means to to be ready to do good. You are ready and willing to look for ways to actively bless others. Someone Someone said it this way, kindness is love with work clothes on. Kindness is love with work clothes. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.9, do not repay evil for evil or revile for reviling, right? He says, don't repay, absorb. On the contrary, bless. Look for ways to bless those, even those who have hurt you and insulted you. So love is patient and kind. Love is also means it does not envy or boast. Love does not envy or boast. Envy means to be resentful of others, especially the success of others. You remember King Saul, right? And how he viewed King David. You remember that? King David is anointed as king. God gave him great favor. The moment he was anointed and the Spirit of God came on him and promised to never depart from him, David had favor everywhere. Yes, he was on the run for quite a while, but he still had favor with God. Everything he did and touched was good. They even sang after a great victory, right? Saul kills his thousands, but David his, what? Ten thousands. Isn't David so amazing? And he's not even king. He's being paraded around, and, it, and all of a sudden Saul's like, Mm. I'm the king. What about me? Envy is always asking, what about me? Where's the attention for me? And then so often we have to boast of our accomplishments. 
because of our insecurities. Instead of, as Paul says, outdoing one another and showing honor in Romans 12. So love does not envy or boast, but love is also not arrogant or rude. To be arrogant means to think of yourself actually as better than others. I actually think I'm better than you. It's not that I can just do some things better. I actually think I'm a better person than you. That's what an arrogant person is. And of course, a rude person is someone who acts, as, acts disgracefully or inappropriate. They, they really are a, a person who just doesn't care about what others think. I'm just going to act how I want because it's all about me. Life is about me. Therefore, Paul says, love also does not insist on its own way. Love is not preoccupied with its own interests and desires. Again, it's not about what you want. Love always asks, what do others want? What is the best interest of others? How do I love my neighbor as myself? Love is not irritable or resentful. An irritable person is easily provoked to anger and and offense and bitterness. A resentful person keeps record of wrongdoing. A resentful person holds grudges. A resentful person is slow to forgive. I'd like to just pause on that moment, just on this little point, because I think all the points are important, but... If I could just say it this way, unforgiveness is the cancer of all relationships. The unwillingness to forgive is always cancerous in your relationships. You see, resentful people are miserable people, resentful people are perpetually a victim. Resentful people continually nurse old wounds. But of course, as a result, they are devoured by their own bitterness. My wife actually shared an Instagram quote by Jen Wilkins this week, and I thought it was very appropriate. She said, "It it is impossible to be increasing in our love for God and simultaneously increasing in our contempt for others. It is impossible to be increasing in our love for God and of God and simultaneously increasing in our contempt for others. That's why John says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, that person is a liar. For, who, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It is hypocritical to say, oh, isn't God amazing and, be, and hold a grudge to harbor bitterness, to be unwilling to forgive people in our lives, our spouse, our friends, our church family, our coworkers, anybody. How often do we forgive? I mean, isn't there a limit? Well, well let me just summarize what Bible says about limits. It's limit, your, God's forgiveness of you is limited on your willingness to forgive others. If we are unwilling to forgive, then we are actually doing ourselves a great disservice because then now we can no longer stand forgiven. So love does not 
Not only does love is not love irritable, but it is also not resentful. It is eager to forgive. It overcomes evil with good, Romans 12.21 says. It covers a multitude of sin, Peter says. Whoever covers an offense seeks or promotes love, Proverbs 17 says. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices at the truth. In other words, it finds no pleasure or joy in injustice or evil of any kind. It always celebrates the truth. Brothers and sisters, may we be a a people, a God-fearing people that celebrates and is eager to find the truth. To not be emotionally reactive, but to celebrate the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Why? Love never fails. Love never ends. It is always steadfast. It is always immovable. It always perseveres. It never gives up. That's why God is love, right? He never gives up. Aren't you so glad that God never gives up on you? I couldn't imagine if, if, there, if I did actually come to a place in which God says, enough is enough. What does that say about the gospel of grace? I think we've all would, we all would have surpassed that limitation if there was such a thing. But love never fails. As I, as, I, as I reflect on that and in closing, you just think of like, what if we just put this into practice, right? What if everybody at least even did half of these things? The world would be a pretty amazing place, would it not? You could actually maybe turn on the news and it could be enjoyable. I know, that's crazy. <laughs> but listen to what John says in John 13. A new commandment I give you, this is Jesus speaking, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In fact, by this all people will know, the world will know that you are my disciples. How? By the love that you have for one another. Our greatest apologetic, our greatest defense of of the faith is not what we can articulate and spew from our mouth. It's not winning arguments. Our greatest apologetic is when people do us harm and injustice that we bless in return. It is confounding. It is paradoxical. It is godliness. It is our greatest apologetic. And unfortunately, we cannot do this. It is an impossible standard apart from his indwelling presence. We can only love in this way when we are filled with his presence. Because when we are filled with his presence, we are filled with his love. And as Romans 5 says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So love for people begins with a love for God. And a love for God begins by being filled with the love of God. I pray that we, 
as a church family, would take these things to heart, that we begin to model them and, and put them into practice in our home, in our gathering together, so that we might bring great glory and honor and praise to King Jesus. What do you think? The fruit of the Spirit is first love. There's something I want to do before we close this out. And I just, you know, I don't believe in coincidence. And yesterday was just another, another uh, example of why I don't believe in coincidence. We're coming down off of Storm King. We went to Storm King, uh, when was it? Friday morning. <laughs> Still feeling it. And right at the bottom, just the timing, Barb is with her friend. I'm like, whoa. Barb, come on forward a second. Barb, I'm just so glad we got a chance to intersect because I see you in the, from the pulpit vantage point, but we don't really know each other that well. Come on up here. Sure, come on up here. Barb has something to say to you. I'm just kidding, Barb. I won't be on the spot. But Barb is actually moving to Savannah, Georgia on Wednesday. And, uh, and she's kind of, it's basically starting a new chapter, a new season of her life. And I was like, Barb, we would love to pray for you. And so, Barb, can we pray for you? Please. Yes. Is there anything you do want to share? Is there anything that you... Uh, I would agree with you that that was, I, I said it as you left that day, it was fortuitous because Aaron prayed for me right there in the trailer. It was the most beautiful thing ever. Mm-hmm. And he invited me to come up front. I can't think of anything better. Uh, the church has been very inspirational for, through COVID. Um, I've mentioned to Aaron that I'm a single person moving to a fairly remote spot. It got very lonely. And this is very much a beacon of light and hope for me. Mm. Amen. Whether you know it or not, you're so hopeful. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it just puts. It's just going to emphasize that point more. You really don't. You don't really know the impact of your presence. It's not just our words. It's our presence. It's what we exude just by being faithful. So, Barb, we want to pray for you, church family. Would you stand if you're able to stand? Stand together, and let's just ask that God would just go before you, that His Spirit would just lead you in the things that He has for you. Let's bow our heads together, Heavenly Father. We just, we just celebrate you. We celebrate your goodness. We celebrate your mercy. We celebrate your grace. Even this morning, we celebrate your love for us. You have been such a good, good father. Jesus, we love that you desire to indwell us and to literally take over our life. And Holy Spirit, that you are the one who's actually directing us. You're convicting us of sin. You're leading us into paths of righteousness. You are the one that goes before us. Father, go before Barb even now. I don't know how much she knows of the, the, the next step looks like, but it doesn't matter because all she needs to do is follow you. Her greatest need is not to figure it all out. Her greatest need is to listen, to be and to stay in your presence. So Father, I just pray that you give her a great favor. All the details that I know she's probably had to grapple with already, and there's a lot of things that she has no idea that she's walking into, Father, but we do know this, that the things that you have prepared beforehand, you've done so that, so that we might just walk in them. So Father, use your daughter, use our dear sister to glorify you, to bring great honor and praise to your name. Father, I pray for a, a church to belong to very quickly, that she would not flounder, but Father, she would just feel right, right at home 
that you bring people into her life that would encourage and strengthen her, but Father, even more so, they would use her. May she be a tool in your hands to bring great glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You're welcome, Mark. I say this in closing. I finished my doctorate. So... I don't, I don't say that necessarily to bring attention to myself, but this has been a seven and a half year journey. There's no sur- greater and surreal feeling than walking away from my final process and I was like, huh, it's done. <laughs> I didn't even know if I'd cross this finish line, but here we are. So thank you, church family, for your incredible support. Uh, just being so flexible in the preaching schedule and everything else, but I feel so glad to be done. And honestly, you made it possible. I could not have done that without your, uh, you know, you actually, first of all, paying for it. Um, that's a huge part right there. Um, but at the same time, really just your flexibility. And so thank you for your encouragement. It's so good to be done. Corey is starting this fall, <laughs> getting a master's in theology. And Hannah is also getting a master's in something at Western. Still to be decided, right? (laughs) So maybe theology also. Yeah. So we got more people stepping up. I'm glad to hand off the baton. Heavenly Father, this is all about you. It always is. And and we find our greatest joy and freedom and life when we make it all about you. Forgive us when we don't. But Father, right now, help us to love. Empower us to love your brothers, your brethren, your church in a way that brings honor to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.